welcome to this Sunday morning meeting podcast from Kingdom Faith Yorkshire. Today's message is by Paul Abel. When Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, he said, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, not just a special elite group, not just for a few Christians that have really got it sold out, but if anyone is in Christ... They are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. The new means to be that new person, but it's actually the person that God intended you to be. The world that we're born in is corrupt, it's it's tainted with sin and selfishness and everything else that goes with that. And the world we grow up in as children, actually, it depends on the experience you have, but all are damaged through that experience. None of us are perfect in the way God intended us to be. I'm sure there are some that are practically perfect, but, you know, none of us are perfect. We've all been damaged, we've all been hurt, we've all had things that we've been through. And the new creation is coming into what it means to be part of one of God's people in his kingdom and part of his family. It's it's how people were originally intended to be, if you like, in the Garden of Eden. It's, it's that full of health, full of vitality, full of energy. And if anyone is in Christ, he or they are a new creation. A new creation. The old, it's gone. The new has come. But you all know that sometimes it feels like that old sticks around a bit. And one of the things that the Lord has been taking us through in this Victory, if you like, learning to live in the victory of what we already have in Christ is taking hold of what it is to be a new creation. And I know, I see it in your eyes, I hear it in your voices, I hear it in the amens and the that's awesome type comments. You have got that. And, but we are also establishing that amongst us. We're fighting for everything, if you like, that is ours. And through the stories that we've looked at, uh, as we've gone through some of the incidents in David's life, as David inquired of the Lord, the enemy was defeated. And we have learned that we need to take hold of what, the, what God has for us, and we will not allow any exceptions. We are not going to allow any exceptions. This will be a house of health. Are you with me on that? We're not going to continue to accept sickness and illness in this house. It should not be here. We're not going to have it. And we will contend for that. Why should we aim for anything less? Because if you want to aim for anything less, who are you going to pick to be sick? All right. Yeah, because that's effectively what we're If we accept low-level sickness, that's okay then. We'll let Brian be ill occasionally for the rest of us because we can't be absolutely taking hold of everything. Who's going to say that? None of you. All right. So it's, we're going to fight, we're going to pray until we see a healthy, 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 healthy church. And we won't accept anything less. Even if we don't see it, this side of our appointment with glory, we'll still pray to see the fullness of the kingdom of God ministering amongst us. The same goes with anything else that's of the kingdom. So we expect our marriages to stay healthy, whole and happy. All right, we all know they're going to have some uh, blips, shall we say? But we're expecting for couples to be strong together. 
Uh, amen? amen? And yet, if somebody gets divorced, we will be there sitting by the world next to them to pick them back up, to enable them to continue to walk in God. Just because you say, we know that marriage is God's plan and divorce is not, doesn't mean you hate people who are divorced. It means you love them all the more because they've been through something that God never wanted them to experience. In the kingdom, God prospers us. What we turn our hands to, we should be prospering in. Maybe you're an artist. Your artistic pictures, maybe, or your sculptures will be prosperous. They should be amazing. You have all the creativity of the creator God in you. Or maybe you are a business person. So therefore, God wants to prosper you in that business because his creativity is in you. Maybe you're an employee. As an employee, you're going to prosper that whole company. You're just going to be a blessing being there. Everybody should feel that when we're around, things are just better. How sad it is when people don't want Christians around because they spoil the fun. We should be the most fun people to have around. You know, the world has to get drunk to have a little bit of a laugh. We're just there already. (laughs) We don't care. We we don't have to worry about our dignity and and what, what things look like. We can just enjoy ourselves in the things of God and in the things that he's given us. So we want to prosper in all that we put our hands to. God is not a God of poverty. He doesn't expect anyone to be living in poverty. So we should expect things to be changed. We pray for individuals' financial situation to change, to come into God's order. We support things like uh, food banks and those kind of organisations like the refugees because we know that that's not God's plan. And some of us... Uh, although all of us, I hope, in, in, in agreement, will be behind changes taking place or wanting changes to take place in the nation to see that people aren't living in poverty. That's the gospel as well. It's the kingdom of God coming in this nation, not just everybody getting saved and living in a spiritual. It's affecting everything that happens. Amen. So you see um, CMA getting alongside people to help people go through terrible situations that they've ended up in with debt. That's awesome. But also we want to be part of a society. We want educated Christians that can talk to a society that stops people getting into debt in the first place. We're new creations. We're living in the kingdom. When we talk about influencing a town, it's not just influencing a town so that everybody's standing there doing this. It's changing the way people live. It's changing the lives that children have. It's a force for good that makes everything better because it is of God. That's who we are. And we will not accept less. If people are in debt, that needs to change. If people are sick, that needs to change. If people don't have enough for something that needs to happen, that needs to change. And as God has taken us through the stories of David, he's taken Old Testament stories to show us spiritual realities for today. That we will chase the army, 35 mi- the army of the uh, enemy 35 miles down the road. We're not having them stealing from God's people. Yes? We want a better society because our society is acknowledging Jesus as king. It's an epidemic of fear and anxiety in our nation. That's not the kingdom. We want to see that change. We want to see that change with children to start with. Children that are growing up in a culture of fear and anxiety through whatever circumstances. 
We want, we want to pray with them directly, we want to work with them directly, and we want to see a society that knows how to deal with these things better. Think big. Think enormous when we dare to dream. Not just about us prospering as a family, but us prospering as a nation in the things of God. Isn't that awesome? It's happened before. When moves of God come, nations change. We want to see that again. A nation that is changed, where there's, there's high levels of fear and anxiety and, uh, 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 and everything else that goes with that. The mental health issues that, that, that then accompany it. The loneliness that's out there. It's time to see that changed. Yes. It starts with us because we don't want it in the house. But then as a house, we want to communicate that to a world and see a world changed. And David, when he had the enemy coming... The key thing we learned was he inquired of the Lord. And the Lord gave him different strategy. Last week, we looked at the story of them bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, and David did not inquire of the Lord. And because of that, disaster struck. Uzzah tried to reach out to save the presence of God and dies because no one should touch the presence of God in that way who was not a priest. Uh, and David gets angry. You know, I was trying to do this for you, God. How many times do we get angry because things don't work out because we were trying to do it for God? And God said, I never asked you to do it. I never wanted that. You did it because you wanted to do it that way. You thought up a great plan. You did something that was excellent, but not of God. You did something that was comfortable, but not of God. You did something the way that you always did it, but it wasn't of God. Or you did something the way others do it. What they were copying was the way the pagan nations carried their idols around on big carts to honour them. So they thought, well, we better do that with the nearest to that that we've got. And it all went wrong. So it's important to inquire of God. And last week we looked at it in the context, and we're going to carry on doing that, as you heard this morning, week after week, looking at, well, what is God's context then of praise when we're gathering together as a community? How does he see that? Are we just going to do what we do or always do? Or shall we look at what the word of God says? We all need to be challenged afresh, even the, even the worship team up there. You know, every time a new word comes up, they've got to think of a song that would help them to worship in that way. I mean, you can use songs in different ways to work with different words, but for that second word, every week it's going to be, right, what song really works? What does it mean to Tehillah? What does it mean? How do you actually enthrone God in worship? How can we actually do that this morning? There was that enthroning God in the worship all morning, actually, wasn't there? It's not just a style. It's that lifting up and acknowledging that he is... An, an, an amazing God. It's honouring him. And because we did that, you got that presence of God there at the end. Because we did what we're supposed to do, the presence of God was amongst us. Which, of course, was what the ark, that box, represented. I don't want to be a Christian if God's not around. It is boring. It's also very hard work. All right? There is no point being a Christian if you're not going to include God. It's just a set of hard rules and regulations that you're going to fail. Don't try and do it your way. It just sets yourself up for all to go wrong. We need to get God's way. And God doesn't give us these words, these praise words, because he gets a little bit of a kick out of seeing us do all these different things. He knows who we are. He knows how we're made. And he knows that these are the things that will enable us to live as that new creation. 
But it also says, Paul writes, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. So don't put yourselves again under a yoke of slavery, Paul writes. You've been set free. Don't start following a load of, you must do this, you mustn't do this, you must do this. Live in the Spirit. Learn to live in the power of God. And learn to live directed by the Spirit. Inquiring of God. Is this for me, Lord? So many people make big, big decisions. Moving house. Getting new jobs. And they don't inquire of God. They just get out a new car and do it the way everybody else does. Even really good Christians, we fall into that trap because that's what the world around us does. So we do that. We sit down and do a SWOT analysis. That's great. But at the end, that's the world's analysis. It might inform you. It might help you. But you've still got to know what God is saying. The SWOT analysis may agree with what God is saying. It may be very helpful in discovering what God is saying. But we have to inquire of the Lord. Every decision we can, that we have to make, especially big ones, God will confirm it in his word. Whatever it is, there will be a word that will, God will give you if you allow him time to speak. Anyway. So, after David gets over himself, he then goes into fear because he realises he was totally wrong. And not only was he totally wrong, he then got angry and blamed God and it was all his fault. So he says, he gets into a place of, how am I ever going to be able to bring this into Jerusalem? How can I ever touch the presence of God? I'm a sinner. I'm, 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 I've got no hope. I just can't do this. And Christians feel like that sometimes. How could I worship God like that? So David gets like this, but... Eventually, he gets over that part of himself as well. First it's anger, then it's self-pity. And then he discovers what the Word of God says. We've been reading this story in Samuel, which is a slightly shorter version to Samuel. If you read it in Chronicles, you'll get a much longer version. It even goes through the names of the people that are playing the instruments. It's a much longer version. But we're going to stick in uh, to Samuel. And... um, we're in chapter 6, and let's just have a look. David was afraid. Oh, yes, yeah, so they couldn't leave the ark on this cart in the middle of the road. So the only one thing David did do was get it into the house of a guy called Obed-Edom, who is a Levite. Now, who were the Levites? In the Old Testament, The Old Testament was different to the New. Everything in the Old is pointing forward prophetically to what we were going to live in. God couldn't just tell people because people don't listen. He also had to show them the full meaning of what it was for people to be restored to perfect relationship with him. If he didn't need to do it this way, he could have told Adam and Eve what needed to happen after they'd sinned and we'd never need to add any of this trouble. But they, they had already ignored him once, and so did generation after generation after generation. We needed to be able to see it and experience it. And so, that's what's going on here, even in this story. We're being shown what's going on. Um, and in the people that God had, that he chose for himself. So, in the world, he said, I'm going to set a people aside. He didn't reject the others, but he set a people aside to show what it was like to be God's people. And amongst those people, a percentage of those people, were then about a twelfth, were set aside to be the priests 
of God. They were the ones to minister at the temple and do all the religious duties. And that was the tribe of the man called Levi. So we call them the Levites. So whenever you see Levites, it's the same as priests. And so the Levites were the persons, according to God's word, which David had but had ignored, that were to carry the ark. There were rings in the side. The box was about this long, this sort of wide, and probably about this deep, and it had big, like, uh, angel or angel wings on the top of it, and it was made of wood, and it was covered in gold. And it had rings on each corner through which you could slide poles so that the priests would carry the ark on their shoulders, not on a cart. You say, well, isn't that just a bit fussy? No, because everything of God is important. And you see, that ark was representative of the presence of God in amongst his people. The same presence that we experience today was being represented by that ark. The original place for the ark was in the tabernacle, which Moses constructed, which we'll probably look at another time. And the ark was to go into the most holy place, the most holy place in amongst the most holy people. So the only people who were allowed to carry the ark, because they were going to carry the presence of God. The presence of God was to rest on the shoulders of the priests. And so the fact that David puts it in the house of a priest was good for the guy that lived there. Obed-Edom was his name. And it says that uh, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has. Because of, this is David, because of the ark of God. The presence of God is there, so they're all blessed. The presence of God is here, so we will be blessed. Right? We can decide to accept otherwise. We can decide to believe an enemy who will cheerfully steal that from you. Or we say, yes, I'm supposed to be blessed. What does it mean to be blessed? You know, initially that just means to be happy. Which is why our vision, the Dare to Dream vision, says at the end, have great fun doing it. What we mean is, be blessed. Be happy doing what we're doing, because we're in God. It's a thing from God, as well as just a feeling. It's good to be happy. Right, if you really enjoy being miserable, that's not the best way to be. God wants you to be happy, and he will enable you to be happy. So, this blessing comes upon Obed-Edom. Blessing also means to prosper. The most way that Obed-Edom prospered was that he had lots of descendants, which in this time was a, great, a sign of great blessing, because it meant that your family would carry on into generations and not just die out. So he was prospered in his descendants, and prospered probably in many other ways as well. So they go to get the ark, and this time they carry the ark on the shoulders of the priests. They're carrying the presence of God with the poles. And David's read up on his stuff, and it says that every six steps, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. They're sacrificing animals. They don't want to get anything wrong this time. They're not going to make any presumptions. And wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark with the shouts and the sounds of trumpets. If you go to Chronicles, you'll see there were all kinds of instruments. It must have been one amazing sort of party. This was not a solemn procession of the presence of God. You think, this is interesting because this is the presence. This is the presence of God. And a lot of people think, well, the presence of God is going to be somewhere where it's just... And yet, 
here in the Old Testament where they've not been set free by Christ, where they're still living under a law, they know that with the presence of God around, there's great celebration. The most holy thing that you could possibly have in the entire world at this time, and they're dancing and celebrating. David has thrown off his kingly robes, and he's dancing in this linen ephod. The word that that it later talks about him, it it means to expose yourself. He's not greatly well-dressed. All right? As he celebrates before God, and dances before God with all his might. That's what it's like to be in God's presence. And when we, when we hold back from worshipping God with everything we have, we're not taking hold of the fullness of the blessing that God has for us. It's like somebody, said, somebody says to me, are you thirsty? Yeah, I'm really thirsty. Here's some water. Drink that, you'll be less thirsty. No, I think I'll eat a biscuit. I prefer biscuits. I'm more comfortable with biscuits. I like to sit and eat a biscuit when I'm thirsty. It's not going to help very much. Even if I like biscuits and not water, it won't help me stop being thirsty. We're thirsty for God. We are desperately thirsty for God. But we can, so we can't just eat biscuits and think that will solve it. You've got to drink the water, so you've got to do what Jesus says. You've got to access the presence, the blessing, the way God says. Otherwise, you're just eating biscuits when you're thirsty. You're just going to be thirstier. You might eat a whole packet of chocolate hobnobs. The results could be spectacular. But you will certainly still be very thirsty. So if you're hungry for the presence of God and you say, well, the way I seek God is this, this is what I'm going to do, all you're doing is, put, is, is bringing out the ark. You need to inquire, Lord, how do you want me to worship you? What, what's right for now? And then you might say, I want you on your face. I want you on your face before me in the Holy of Holies. I want you in silence. Or you might say, get along on Sunday morning and I want you to dance. Dance around the room. Go down the front and dance in front of everybody. How many of us would be too embarrassed to come down here and start dancing? Why are we embarrassed? Because we're worried about what people will think about us. Why are we not worried about what God will think about us? I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable. I'm just trying to say, look, we're thirsty. We want more of God. We need, we need to do what is of God. And things like saying, come down the front and dance, are just to make us think and challenge us. This is not a sacred space. If you want to lie on the floor down here, come down here. Just probably not before the children go out or, or, or you can get trampled. <laughs> so you might be safer at the back. Well, you want to get the flags out and wave the flags. We usually keep them down the back so that you don't take people's heads off and so you can still see the band. Or maybe God just says, kneel. Kneel before me and bless me, Borak. Anyway. They bring the ark back. David's dancing before all the Lord. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Do you know she should have been leading the women's praise procession? Did you know that? But she didn't want to do it. She was watching from a window. How often do we watch what the others are doing? And because 
There's probably guilt mixed in there that she knows what she should be doing because of her position as the queen, married to David. She does what a lot of people do when they sin. They blame others. You see, the problem when we sin and we've done things wrong is the only answer is to repent and say, I'm sorry, God, I shouldn't have done that. I changed my mind. But often we don't want to do that because... That's to admit we've been wrong. And if you're like me, we can get proud and we don't like being wrong. And we certainly don't like others seeing us wrong. So the, the way to, but of course you still feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit. You still feel like this has got to be dealt with. So what a lot of people do is they blame others. Or you make others worse than you. So okay, I am a sinner. But if I can make those guys a lot worse than I am, if I can blame my house church, if I can blame the church leaders, if I can blame my best friend... I don't seem so bad, and I'll be okay. It's a dangerous slope, because it ends up pushing, you're pushing God away from you more and more and more, trying to feel justified, when actually all you needed to do was say, I'm sorry God, I got that wrong. It's how often we can fight against that. It's not me, I'm not like that. We are like that. We're saints, but we are sinners. We do sin. We do do things wrong. We do hurt people. We do say things we wish we hadn't said. We do things we regret that we should have done when we know we shouldn't have done it. We don't bother doing things that we know we should have done. These are all sin. That is not to leave us feeling condemned. That is to leave us in a position of acknowledging he is my saviour. He forgives me. I am free to not get back into this place again. Nobody should feel bad about being a sinner. What? Because we're free from that. The enemy, the devil, likes people to feel really bad about being sinners. He likes to get them depressed and miserable about it. God just wants us to be free and forgiven. The Holy Spirit won't make you feel bad. The Holy Spirit will bring a conviction that that, that there's something wrong there. He's not doing it to make you feel bad. The enemy will bring condemnation. The enemy wants the, the enemy loves to lead people to tempt people into doing something, and then when they've done it, he says, "Look what you did. <laughs> You're supposed to be a Christian. That disqualified you for Sunday. You better take at least two Sundays off while you get yourself holied up again. <laughs> you shouldn't be in there. Some of those people there on a Sunday morning at Kingdom Faith—they're really holy people, and you're not. So you should not be there. You'll spoil it." The Holy Spirit won't come if you go. You're a sinner, so you shouldn't be there. Anybody ever heard the enemy saying that? I sure have. (laughs) Anyway, she's watching from a window, and she sees King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despises him in her heart. How sad it is that that attitude is endemic in the Christian world. When people see others praising God by leaping or dancing or maybe doing something that they don't do, instead of thinking, is that of God? Wow, I want to be free. They despise them. Because if you can disapprove of them, you don't have to do it. If you can prove that that's wrong, then you don't have to do it. Because you don't want to do it because you've never done it. It's not comfortable. It's challenging. Whatever it is in God. So instead of saying sorry to God, you say, they're wrong. That's awful. That's not of God. So many internet sites, that's all they are. 
all those criticisms of various ministries, all they are are people trying to excuse their own attitude. Because they don't want to change. So they dress it up and they find biblical verses from here and there and there to justify their own opinion. It's like every book in the world is in the dictionary. You can make the dictionary say whatever you want. It's all in there. You can prove that God exists. You can prove that Santa Claus is a fairy that lives on Venus. All the words are there in the dictionary. There's an awful lot of words in the Bible. And you can twist them and use them. Which is why you have to take whatever's written and put it in the context of how it was written. The context is so important. Because words change in meaning. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, it was freezing. That was wicked. I didn't know it was evil. No, I meant it was cool. It wasn't cold. No, it was sick, man. I didn't see anybody ill. (laughs) Words change. They always have and they always will. Uh, So, she despises him. Now, this is really important. Okay? Because we're talking about living in the new creation, living in the blessing, and living in the kingdom. And Michelle, or as I just called her Michelle, but it's really Michelle, she misses all of it because of the attitude of her heart. Anyway, they brought the ark of the Lord, they set it in place inside the tent that David had pitched for it, because uh, they haven't got the tabernacle anymore. They're going to rectify that later down the line. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Everybody then gets blessed. He gave them a loaf of bread, basic provision, a cake of dates, more than you need, a cake of raisins, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's what blessing is. Blessing isn't just having enough. Blessing is having more than you need. You don't need cake. But God gives it anyway. A whole cake of dates. You don't really need love, peace, fruitfulness. You could still get away with life. But God gives you the fruit of the Holy Spirit anyway. The cake of raisins. To each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. Then it says, David returned to his home to bless his household. He's been in the presence of God. And he's going home now to bless his family. Generations to come. He's got the blessing. He's taking it home to, 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 to spread amongst his family. And David returns home. Michal, the daughter of Saul, comes out to meet him and says, <laughs> you can hear it in these words, can't you? <laughs> it's a, <laughs> there. How the, David, how the king of Israel, I mean, the sarcasm there, it's dripping has distinguished himself today. Remember, she's the daughter of Saul. She's, she's been around royalty longer than David. How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls. As any vulgar fellow would. Any vulgar fellow, a translation. <laughs> this is NIV, New International Version, vulgar fellow. <laughs> This is the Jacob Rees-Mogg translation. (laughs) Anyway, she just... And David says to Michal, it was before God. It wasn't before slave girls. 
I wasn't worried about what others were thinking. Imagine what a difference in praise and worship if everybody just says it's before God. I don't care what the others think. Yeah, he was a king. He was supposed to wear his kingly robes and look noble. And he got rid of it all and wore this linen ephod. Just as any lowly priest would do. It's even questionable whether he should have been wearing it because he's not a priest. But he is a king. But a king's not a priest. Anyway, it was before the Lord who chose me. How many Christians can say those words? Why were you waving a flag in the worship? It was before the Lord who chose me. Why, why were you kneeling on the floor for so long? It was before the Lord who chose me. Why did you put your hands in the air and just hold them there? Didn't your arms ache? It was before the Lord who chose me. Why are you singing in tongues for so long? It was before the Lord who chose me. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> he appointed me ruler over Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. And then he says this phrase that lots of people have heard. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. Are you willing? I don't know if I am. I either think I am. But are you willing to be so responsive to God that you would, in response to God in worship, allow yourself to be humiliated? Because you are honouring God. It's, it's there. I can become even more undignified than this. Wow. I mean, it's not about just doing something for the sake of doing it. It's not like getting everybody on stage right quack like ducks. Because that will be humiliating. This is about responding to the Spirit and following his lead. And so, for some people, when I said, come and dance at the front here, that would be, because of where you are in your walk with God, really humiliating. There's no rejection. There's no, you're not good enough. There's no, you shouldn't be here. That's what the enemy says to you. But actually... Freedom means I don't mind being humiliated. I can be even more undignified than this. I can wear jackets like this. I can wear orange shoes. (laughs) I can tell the people I work with that I go to church. I can say to the lady in Sainsbury's when she tells me something good, oh, praise God. I can say when a member of my family talks about something that happens really good, I can say, oh, we prayed. Thanks God. Thank God for that. I'm not talking about getting on a preachy platform. I'm just saying, let's just be who we really are. 
thanksgiving and gratitude is key to walking in this blessing. Because that's what happened to, this is what happens to Paul Mikkel. It's a very, it's actually very, very sad. Um, but by these slave girls you spoke of, this is in replying to his wife, I will be held in honour. That's the funniest thing, really. You know how we think, well, if I do that, what will people think? In this room, with the other slave girls, it's me and Ron, (laughs) we are going to think, that's great, they're free. That's what most people in this room are going to think if you're on your face, or dancing, or praying. On, th- on, th- on, th- on Thursday night, I was absolutely delighted to actually hear some of the girls going, Rrrr! Oh, that wasn't a very good one, but... <laughs> shrilling, rinar, Hebrew word for praise. To shout, utter a shrill cry. As it says in Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord is rejoicing over you with singing, it says in the NIV. Not really. No, he's singing with such incredible passion that every now and again in the middle of the tune he just goes... Because he's so passionate about you. It's the emotional, on fire, happy God. He's happy. That's why he blesses us. He releases his happiness. Happy are those. You know the Sermon on the Mount, which is all blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. You could equally translate it, happy are those, happy are those, happy are those. Ooh. And then there's this really horrible verse. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Remember, Dave went, David, Dave, David, (laughs) King Dave, (laughs) went home to bless his family. She's not blessed. I mean, we've got to step back into the culture of those days and to the ultimate sign of being blessed was women having children. So if someone didn't have children, it was seen as cursed. I mean, I don't know whether she was incapable or whether David and her never had a good night again. We don't know. Either way, it wouldn't have been a blessing. Their marriage was ruined on this day. And yet the blessing was there. This is why it's so important to listen to what God is saying to us these da- in these days and That's think, right. I want to be there. Now you think, what, what are you going to do if you're not there? Well, you can only start where you're at. It's no good saying, well, I, I can't, I, I'm never going to do this. And, you know, I'd really rather you went out and helped the poor and the sick in the town than danced at the front. That's another level of freedom. And you're thinking, but say, let's just take this. I'll never, I'll never be able to twirl. The word, used, the word used of David there when he's dancing is one that means he was twirling. <laughs> he's twirling round and round and round. How often have you twirled? <laughs> Give us a twirl. To the Lord. <laughs> yeah, Incredible. The blessing is yours. Will you take it? Or will you despise it? Will you say, the only way I will have the blessing is on my terms. I like biscuits. 
I'm not drinking water. I'm going to finish by just looking at something else. If you jump through your Bible, to, if you've got your Bible out, jump to Hebrews, and there we will finish. I won't speak for very long. Hebrews chapter 10. So everything we've been looking at was before Jesus. These are our people under the old covenant, the old covenant of law. And Hebrews 10 verse 1 says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. If you were to go back to the time of the Renaissance and watched Van Dyck or Rubin painting one of their amazing, extremely expensive today paintings, they would start with chalks and you would have a sketch of the painting. You would see it in its fullness. You would see the picture of what it was going to be, whatever it was going to be. Often a... um, a biblical theme or maybe an ancient Greek god theme, you'd see all the people in their poses in the picture. That's my picture pose. Okay? But it would look nothing like what the picture was going to look like when it was finished in all its glorious colour. I mean, the uh, Van Dyck was amazing at making silk look silk with paints. I mean, it's an incredible skill when you think about it. Most of them had this amazing ability to make things look like there was a light shining on it. It's an incredible skill that they got. But you wouldn't have seen that when you saw the outline of the painting. You would see what it was going to be, but you wouldn't really see what it was going to be. That is what the Old Testament is to the New. It's the sketch. You can see everything. It's all there. You can discover everything about the picture, even in the chalk sketch. But the reality is so beautiful. You see the light, you see the silks, you see the expressions so much more clearly on the faces. There's usually most paintings of that period, a lot of them have a, a very dynamic, it's like something's just caught, and you see tension and things in the, in the painting. The law is only a shadow of the things to come. That, that's really kind of how you could take that Greek word to mean. It's the, it's the, it's the pre-picture. It's, it's, it's more helpful, I think, than shadow, because shadow is just a black outline. There's more to it than that. You can, you can see much more than just you can in a shadow, but you can't see the fullness. And so in the old, like we saw in that story, for this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who are drawn near to worship. It could only show an outline of what it was going to be like. But we had to see it so that we would understand it. Otherwise, we wouldn't understand it. If we hadn't had those sacrifices year after year after year, and actually ending in futility, if that's all that had ever happened, we wouldn't understand what that sacrifice that Jesus was going to make the perfect one. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. The writer makes the point that if it worked, you didn't need to keep on doing it. If sacrificing the bull meant you were sorted, you don't need to sacrifice another bull. But 
But these sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Jump down a bit. Verse 8. Well, just mention in passing that, of course, he mentions that even in the Old Testament, it says, sacrifice and offering he did not desire. God doesn't really like the sacrifice of animals. But he was prepared to pay that price to enable people to come back to him. It's not really something, he's not like, oh, fantastic, they've slaughtered another bull. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Though that's what the law said you had to do. And then he said, this is about Jesus, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. He takes the chalk picture and paints it and shows the fullness of what it was to show. And by that will, the will that set aside the first to establish the second, to, get, to uh, move on from the old and into the new, by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ once for all. We don't have to sacrifice Jesus every day or every year. It's done. See, day after day, the priest stands and performs. But after this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. When you sit down in that culture, it meant you were finished. And he sits down in the place of honour next to God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. What are we doing right now? Reminding the enemy of where he belongs. Not in the valley of giants, raping, stealing, pillaging. But under our feet. That's what we're doing in the worship and the prayer and the belief. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So I'm going to leave it there, but just a final comment on that. Remember, the presence of God could only be carried by the priests because they were the ones set apart to do that. The word holy means to be set apart for God. That's what it means. So in that sacrifice of Christ, we were set apart for God. We were holy. Elka is holy. She's set apart for God. Nigel is holy. He's set apart for God. Not because he lives an absolutely perfect lifestyle, even if he did. That wouldn't make him holy. That would make himself righteous. Holiness is what Jesus achieved for everybody. Which is why we carry the presence of God. And why we should not despise the water and only eat biscuits. One sacrifice made perfect forever. You're not going to ruin it. You will never be unholy again. 
Once something's set apart, that's it. It's done. Michelle will never be unholy. John and Jackie, sitting at the back there, they will never be unholy. They are one holy pair of dudes. Because they have been set apart by God. They are special to him. So then, why does it say those who are being made holy? Well, because we are made perfect, we are made holy, and then we learn how to live it. The position is achieved. Now you've got to learn how to live it. I'm the senior pastor. I was made the senior pastor. I had the position, if you like. Then I had to learn how to do it. When you bought a guitar, you became a guitarist. You were a guitarist. But it took you quite some time to learn how to be a guitarist. And that's where we are. We are holy. So we can carry the presence of God, but we're learning how to do it. What does that mean? What does it mean to be set apart from God? What does it mean to inquire of God and do as he says? That's where we're at. Amen? Can we just stand to finish? Hallelujah. I was going to do something uh, sort of more spiritual and pray. Uh, and, and just as I was going to say something, it was like the Holy Spirit interrupted. And uh, so I believe actually this is the Holy Spirit thing rather than the praying thing that I was going to do. Um, take four minutes. Talk to two or three people around you. What? And you might not be able to share the deepest of things because I don't know how you get on with those people around you, but attempt to just share what could it possibly mean when I say you need to drink water instead of eating biscuits for you. What are you stuck in doing that actually God says is another way? Just three or four minutes where you are and then we'll finish. Okay? Praise God. Thank you for listening to this Kingdom Faith podcast. We trust it's been an encouragement to you. For more information and resources by Kingdom Faith and for our other audio and video podcasts, please visit kingdomfaith.com forward slash Yorkshire.